So happy you stuck around and that you're here tonight and doing my best these days to, uh, to keep my sense of humor. As Wavy Gravy says, uh, otherwise it's not funny. <laughs> have to laugh. So I, in that spirit, I wanted to begin tonight by recycling uh, teaching that was very meaningful to me because it was both poignant and funny. Poignant in that it speaks to the endemic uh, issues that we experience in this world, many more than others, of racism and xenophobia and just othering that is a, a tendency of our species out of ignorance and how we can how we can meet this, uh, this world and not be overly idealistic uh, or just pretend that these issues are not really a part of the, of the Dharma, the truth of our lives. And this is an interview that came out in the 1990s with a at the time, he was a 12-year-old Tibetan Lama. Lama meaning teacher. And his, uh, his name uh, is Pema Jones. And no, at the time, he was a 13-year-old Tibetan Lama. And he's known as Rinpoche, which means precious one. And he was born in India to a Tibetan mother and an American father. He lived in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery until he was seven. He now lives in Wyoming. And at the time, he is one of the youngest Buddhist teachers in the United States, in Wyoming. And the interviewer's name was Chris Helm. This is Chris. It must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection to the Dharma? Teachings, truth. It's kind of weird, Pema responds. I have two older brothers, and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche. The kids at school don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them. Why not? I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. So how do you deal with people trying to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. 
It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese. But this is America. I got to live here with my own karma. Some skinhead doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp my head. You're in a gang? It's just for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own, but by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> sure. Do you like your students? Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. What other stuff? They mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about problems with their wives. Women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough time as it is with school and Little League and my chores, and they want me to be a shrink or something. And I'm only 13. I've got girlfriends and all, but what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psychologist. I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brothers and sister to Dairy Queen. It's cool. <laughs> Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. There's suffering, you diagnose it, give someone a prescription, and hope they go to the doctor. Or go, hope, they, hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing different types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine and come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is choice. So you're fully qualified to teach? Sure, I mostly teach Tang Len, giving and receiving. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you and, so many, and too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in our country, in this country. You're basically a giant filter, like on an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air and breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? It's a samsara and nirvana thing. If, if some guy disses me, I can te just tell myself that he really doesn't exist separate from me, you know. It's like he's dissing himself. That works fine, but what happens when he stops talking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anyone. Don't you see a contradiction in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, 
constantly teaches nonviolence, despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Ha, huh, yeah, oh yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. What do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or, or bust some karate move on him? <laughs> no way, man. The bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so any kind of model that you have of the, of the perfect perfect equipoise, the perfectly non-reactive, perfect sitting in the perfect mudra, letting the world come and go, doesn't really speak to the, to the richness, to the, the, the spontaneity, to the, the, the regularness of our capacity to be awake in this world and to be of benefit and to take care of ourselves and to take care of each other. But we do, as Pema Jones reminds us, we do need to be open, to breathe in the way things actually are, to breathe, to be here with our karma, to see the way things actually are, to see when we need protection, to see when others need protection, and either teach them how to cool things down or join with them in a gang to, for protection, not to cause harm. And so it's, it's not just hide away in, in your cave and sit quietly. It's the balance of, of being awake to our interbeing and our interdependence, that that person doesn't exist apart from me, but then at the exact same time, being willing to put yourself on the front lines. So I was thinking tonight, while we were sitting, about the, the Buddha's awakening. And I imagine, and this has been verified by many of you who've told me about your experience, that there is a, there is a process that goes on when we orient ourselves to real time, which is what we did in the sitting tonight, we, we relinquish the imagined past, we relinquish the future, all those, those imagined places where when we dwell in, in what could happen, what could be unfolding, we tend to go into a state of fear, fight, flight, freeze. When we tend to to ruminate or, or get fixated, caught in the imagined past. We tend to, uh, to feel regret or guilt or, or just a kind of reverie about when we have the pleasant thoughts of past experiences. But in that tendency, we, we often miss a kind of uh, 
open presence. We miss, as I mentioned in the sitting, what you are searching for. Uh, you're already resting in what you're searching for. Just kind of pose that, that idea. And I, I, I sense that when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, as many of you sometimes experience, as he became more connected to simple reality, the simple living present, as any of us who just open our senses experience, there's not much of me here. There's not much of you. In those moments of wakefulness, there is an absence of me. There's an absence of mine. And when I say that, I don't mean you're still here in full living color. But there's a cessation, an absence of the idea of yourself. It melts away. The story of you and your life melts away. And there is just aware presence. And if you dwell in that, moment by moment, using whatever sense experience to keep freshening that simple aware presence. Does that make sense? If you use everything that happens, as I said, use everything in the service of being awake to this living present. When you do that and you stay in it, that sense of awake presence gets, starts to reveal itself more. And it begins to reveal itself as more your natural state of being aware. So you are at the root, sometimes it's called Buddha nature, just a, an awakened, awakened nature, aware nature. And if you begin to explore this nature as I think the, the Buddha did, he began to sense that with the absence of that preoccupation with, the, with me and my situation and my story and my idea about myself, my past, my future, the world's past and the world's future, absent of all that, there's this great vastness, this un, um, un, um, unimpeded capacity. There's this just amazing openness that we are naturally. In, this, in the moments of being open, we're not even a person. We're, a, we're, we're vastness itself. We're this big openness. Of course, we can reflect on the fact that we couldn't know that unless we were a person. So we never deny the fact that we're a person too. But that what our direct experience as a person is, I hope this is making a little sense, as you practice moment-to-moment awareness, kissing the ground with your feet, being, a, I call it, a, a warrior for now, for right where we are, there is this, an increasing sense that there's space, there's room. And we start to sense that that, that gives us that reveals to us this unconfined capacity to see 
a little more clearly each other to see what's going on. To, to see with much more intelligence. To then maybe act more intelligently. Or if we see confusion or ignorance, to learn from it. But a problem with the human species, it's a species problem, my friend Hanuman says. He says, we have a human species problem. Is that we, of course, the, the way that the Buddha would talk about it is that we have this, this sense of this great openness, this unconfined capacity. It's called vija, or it's called primordial intelligence. That all of us have it. It's, it's take heart in that right now, that you have every person here, no matter what your situation, we're all Buddhas. And I think last week I talked about being Buddhas in drag. You know, we're, we're sleeping Buddhas, we're sad Buddhas, happy Buddhas, frustrated Buddhas, restless Buddhas, confused Buddhas. But nevertheless, at the root of it all, that underlies the whole of life and death is this great openness. Sometimes it's called in the Tibetan tradition the ground luminosity that exists as the very nature of our minds. But this luminosity, because of contact and feelings and reactions and thoughts, gets somehow uh, co-opted by a, a uh, one little, what's called a mental factor, one little factor called uh, avijja, which is ignorance. And the, the changing experiences that we have are mistakenly co-opted by what's called the personality view, the sense of self, me and mine. And there is a, a separation. And that once that view, once that ignorance takes root, then everything in the world becomes an us and a them, self and other. And the way that evolves over time, over time in so many ways is the separation of, of um, separation by height, color, shape, religion, every other kind of, every kind of division. And it's all a reinforcement of a kind of ignorance about the, va the, the, the vast ignorance of what we realize when our mind is open, is that there's no inside and there's no outside, there's no other. And so then we find the way that it manifests in this country, just a form of ignorance. And I, I want to quote tonight from... I've, I was trying to think of where I would use this. I want to quote from Charles Johnson, who's a, an African-American scholar, a Dharma teacher, a beautiful guy. And this is, this is what he describes very simply about the, the black experience in this country. He says... Uh, Black's social and psychological suffering can be traced 
to the historical damage caused by slavery, by legal racial segregation, and the, and the ways this very white, violent, dualistic, materialistic, Eurocentric, and racially provincial society demonizes black people and presents wasps as the universal standard for humankind. This is a form of delusion. When we get outside of our Western cultural racial fishbowl, we see a different world. And he cited two very obvious and simple things that we wake up to when we step out of our little bubble. Whites make up between 17 and 30% of this world. People of color make up 70 to 83% of this world. This, is, this basic fact is lost in this kind of narrow view that's created by this sense of separation, by just a larger form, a larger expression of the ignorance that plays in our mind. So not only do we open to the the, in our practice to the divisive views of, of, of racism and legal segregation, etc., our different institutions, our neighborhoods, but we also open to the ways that we uh, segregate ourselves out in our minds. And we can all take heart is that at our root, we have this capacity, we have this view that's very wide and inclusive and caring and responsive. And so to me right now with, with the, you can see the full, in many cases, the full expressions of the narrow view, the, the othering as it, as it expresses itself in terms of our religious and racial uh, divisions and targeting, etc., that, um, that our, practice, our practice is more important than ever. And yet we can't just sit around and talk about there being a vast, open, sky-like nature of our mind that underlies the whole of life and death. We have to realize it every day and let the heart qualities flow from that and not stop until th there's no person that we can place outside of, our, outside of that field of love, of that field of caring. And so that means each of us has to be really honest about the way that we, our own versions of narrow, our own versions of self-preoccupation, we have to treat that with, you okay? okay? You're cramping? Okay. Our own, our own, um, we have to notice our own cramps. <laughs> the, and and re root out in our own minds, through our, our own in, internal intelligence, root out our own racism, our own xenophobia, our, our own othering. And, and wake up, wake up, wake up for the benefit 
of all beings. If there's ever a time that, there's always, it's always been this way, but it's a time to, to use the, whatever tension you feel to, to, to practice, to practice and practice thoroughly. I like this passage from Sri Nisargadatta, who's a teacher from the Advaita Vedanta world. He says, your own little body is full of mysteries, yet you are not afraid of it, for you take it as your own. What you do not know is that the entire universe is your body, and you need not be afraid of it. You may say you have two bodies, the personal and the universal. The personal comes and goes. The universal is always with you. This entire creation is your universal body. You are so blinded by what is personal that you do not see the universal. This blindness will not end by itself. It must be undone skillfully and deliberately. When all illusions are understood and abandoned, you recognize the clear and perfect state in which all distinctions between the personal and the universal are no more. This passage is meant for the the point of realization. But if you look at the life of the Buddha, realization was followed by 45 years of unceasing service. Unceasing natural expression of awakened consciousness. I've never met a person who awakened, who had, who realized, not just knew that they had Buddha nature, but realized that. I've never met one person who devoted themselves to that awakening who didn't become passionate about, passionate for things and people and situations in this world, who did not become activists in some form. And this is not to shame yourself into acting, just going out and doing something for its own sake. It's really a, a call to, to, um, to keep, keep squeezing, as Hafez says, keep squeezing drops of the sun, keep shining the light of your attention on, keep awake during the day. I noticed I had four days off which was quite fantastic, you know, the Thanksgiving weekend. But I noticed my tendency to uh, pick up the phone, the computer, and I noticed how easily, how seductive it was just to start to move, incline toward numbness. And then once I would stop those moments that I did that, I I took note of the way I felt. And it, didn't, it did not feel onward leading, onward leading toward, toward, uh, toward being, being healthier, happier, wiser, for the benefit of the people who have to live around me and all beings everywhere. It seemed I was just somewhat, uh, just my own little mini version of checked out. And I know we do all these things out of, 
out of sometimes the need to, to unplug, and everybody's finding their own way of unplugging from the current situation, or at least modulating how much or how little. But I think we can do, we can do this kind of modulating in ways that don't have to compromise our, our heartfulness, our vitality, our awe and wonder at, in the midst of all the craziness, the beauty that can be find, found that is so nourishing. And of course, you're here at a Sangha, so you can, you can kind of tune into that. I, I don't know, for me, when I'm with a Sangha, a community of, that's somewhat devoted to being awake, that I'm reminded of the, of the deliciousness of being present, even in this crazy world. That it's okay to be happy, to be glad, to take in the beauty of it. If I'm just dulling out, I don't get that same kind of benefit. So then, then we can, if we're, if we're awake a little bit at least, then we can do our own version of Tonglen. Breathe it in. Breathe it out. Generate lots of loving kindness. Lots of, lots of, just take our medicine. Go to the doc, what, what I forgot what he said. Go to the drugstore. Don't just sit around discussing different types of medicine. Buddhism is no big deal. Take some medicine, come back next week. <laughs> I think that's time. <laughs> so I, I would like to, um, to end with uh, with, a, with a, a, in some ways, a prayer from Jean Van, Vanier. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's really a prayer to melt away this illusion of separateness so that we, that we can actually uh, see our shared humanity. He says, in order to enter the path of forgiveness, we have to lose our feelings of both superiority and inferiority. Each of us has hurt another each of us has been hurt. So the inferiority, superiority, is just one way of talking about our preoccupation with ourself. And I think it's really easy right now to get preoccupied with your fear of what's to come. All, often, if you really look deeply, a lot of that fear is all about me. And so we want to forgive ourselves for, for that as well. Forgive ourselves, forgive each other, and, and plant the seeds of, of love wherever we can. So let's just sit quietly for a minute, forgetting everything you just heard. <laughs> unfurl your heart, unfurl your mind. Let the idea of yourself melt away into the openness of your practice. Till you recognize that reality of non-separateness, of wholeness. 
a place where you touch all beings and consider the fruits of your practice tonight, your, your life, and any of the fruits, any of the benefits, any of the merit that you may have accrued from your good works, your sincerity, offer it freely to your fellow beings, all the humans, all the creatures, all the politicians, the different species. Sharing the blessings of our practice with a deep wish that all beings, all beings who draw breath can have a sense of well-being and happiness, peace, that all beings can be free of suffering and torment and feel safe in this world from inner and outer harm. Deep wish that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness, Buddha nature, the unconditioned well-being here and now and not overlook this vital point. The deep wish that all beings can grow in serenity and equanimity with a greater and greater capacity to meet the inevitable joys and sorrows, gains and losses, pleasures and pain with, with more balance, with less reactivity. May our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be liberated from self-confusion. Thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me muck around in my own integration of the Dharma. And um, thanks for your generosity and Hope to see you next Tuesday, and uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah, and I have a few books if anybody wants to, to get a book. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.